Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm grateful that unlike any of us, even us collectively, we couldn't possibly manage all of this that's going on. And we thank you also, Lord, that you, you care far more deeply for these people than we ever could. Your word says that you have an everlasting love. And um, so we thank you. We pray that you would continue to just be with all of our loved ones. Um, Lord, not just with all of the physical uh, things that are going on, but the emotional as well. And then being separated from family. Um, Lord, all things that by your spirit, you can minister to them. And so, Lord, do for all of them what we can't do for them. Lord, please bring healing. Please comfort their hearts, encourage their faith. And um, Lord, I pray that you'd protect the rest of us. And yeah. And Lord, I pray also that you would be with us as we look into this text and try to find encouragement from it. Uh, Not simply knowledge, but um, application, understanding, Lord, and wisdom. So Lord, we thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we have a few new people here tonight. I'm sure it's because we had some young talent on stage. Grandparents don't miss that kind of thing. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice that when the worship leaders have some talent. Because you certainly don't want me up here doing that, okay? So I tell people, I'll sing on a hill far away. And then everybody will be fine. They won't be offended and... So, yeah, BJ, I'm very grateful for all that you're doing with our young people and um, for the worship ministry here. So grateful for it all. Um, Yeah. I know you love the applause of men. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, last time we were together in Isaiah, we went through, uh, I think, a record-breaking number of chapters. But I didn't want to just, you know drag you through all of the judgment that is mentioned, although that is a part of the, the text. It's uh, all that those nations, uh, the, the wicked within them, they have that to look forward to. It's going to happen. And, um, but then also toward the end, uh, chapter 24, we concluded not with the judgment of individual nations, but the judgment of the whole earth. Okay, everything is going to come down to that. Um, But we understand that the judgment of the whole earth comes at a very specific appointed time, and that's at the end of time, right? That's when it's going to happen. And uh, and that's a whole lot of judgment. Now, before we continue in Isaiah, I wanted to ask you a few questions that have to do with judgment, okay? I, I think that as cultures especially become more and more secular, the more they get used to um, injustice, unrighteousness, sin and evil, uh, it's like the, you know, the frog in the boiling pot. You, it's just a little bit at a time, and you, you begin to, um, you know, like what this generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I guess kind of as a, a litmus about where we are as God's people, uh, I have these questions. And I wonder what God's people, perhaps, in, um, you know, during the Great Awakening, how they would have responded to some of this. And when you read the Psalms, 
under certain circumstances, you see different views of God's righteous judgment, depending on what the people have endured uh, as far as evil is concerned. And uh, so there's a very uh, different and subjective response oftentimes to judgment. To the, and by judgment, I mean the, the wrath of God, the wrath of God, okay? So how do you respond as an individual to the Lord's righteous indignation, his judgment of the wicked and unbelieving? Because, and I don't want us to miss what these terms actually mean in, in Scripture, Uh, Paul says in Thessalonians that when Jesus returns, he will do so in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all those who do not know God, the wicked, the unbelieving, okay? And he will destroy them. And he's talking about eternal destruction. The soul is eternal. And in this very strange kind of way, the soul will die forever. However, the Lord will do that. Okay. So when I say, how do you respond to the Lord's righteous indignation and his judgment to the wicked and unbelieving, I want you to keep that in mind. And when we look at passages like Thessalonians, Revelation 19, Isaiah 63, and these very graphic, uh, Revelation 14, um, you know, the one I think, you know, Isaiah 63, and, and I'm not trying to freak you out or gross you out. Well, kind of, I guess. Um, the, the probably the most graphic is the wine press of the wrath of God, where, where God throws the, the wicked unbelieving into the wine press, and then Jesus tramples them under his feet until the blood rises to the horse's bridle, and his vesture is completely drenched in the blood of his enemies. That's horrifying. It's horrifying. It's sobering. But how do we respond? I mean, what do we think about it? Um, and, you know, what we believe about God's judgment is ultimately going to determine how we respond to it. You know, uh, do you see God's judgment as extreme? Uh, do you believe that God's judgment is just merely necessary? Or do you believe that God's judgment is good, is good? So I want to take a look at how Isaiah responds to the future annihilation, not the doctrine of annihilation, but the eternal destruction of the wicked. When I say annihilation, there is a... Uh, a fringe group of people that believe in the annihilation of the soul, that when uh, the soul is cast into hell, it ceases to exist. Um, that's not what Jesus taught. Uh, so when I say annihilation, I don't mean the doctrine of annihilation. So let's, let's take a look. Um, time. I might have bitten off more than I can chew. Go to Isaiah 25. You're probably already there. I'm too busy talking. Isaiah 25. Listen to what Isaiah says here. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Notice that. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth, for you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a place of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you, The city of the terrible nations will fear you, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud, 
the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines. On the, I don't know how to pronounce that lease. It means aged wine. Of fat things full of marrow, a well-refined of well-refined wines on the lease, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him, and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst, as a swimmer reaches out to swim, and he will bring down their pride, together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls, he will bring down, lay low, and bring to ground, to the ground, down to the dust. In that day, so it's the same thing here, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. For he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name. And for the remembrance of you, with my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of, the uprightness, of, of, of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. O Lord our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased, they will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You've expanded all the borders of the land. Lord, in trouble, they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child, as a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Your dead shall live. 
together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Whew. Did you notice what chapter 26 is called? A song, a song. Yeah, it's, it's actually not um, as dark as Deborah's song. You know, many people don't think about what Deborah said after uh, the Israelites defeated Sisera. Uh, her song is dark. It's, it's almost twisted. <laughs> and go ahead and read it later. And because if I say too much, you'll think, Pastor Ben, that's not very nice. Uh, but if you go read it for yourself, you'll think, what? And then try to imagine you saying that about an enemy. Or maybe you shouldn't imagine that. Let's get in the text a little bit. I'm not sure that we'll finish, uh, but I'm really excited to get to the end of chapter 26, all of this fun eschatology. So verse one and two, he says, "'O Lord, you are my God. "'I will exalt you, I will praise your name, "'for you have done wonderful things. "'Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth.'" Okay, why? For or because you have made a city a ruin a fortified city, a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. How is Isaiah responding, reacting to God's judgment? He's exalting God. He's praising God. And he says that what God has done is wonderful in that he has crushed a city to nothing, a city that was so destroyed that it will never be rebuilt Again, is that your response to God's judgment? I would dare to say that Isaiah's response is the godly one, the godly one. God intends to bring ruin upon the earth, and it just isn't arbitrary ruin. It's righteous ruin. He goes on, he says, Therefore the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. You have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Uh, now, it says that the strong and the terrible ones or terrible nations will glorify God and fear him. This isn't stated in a, in a positive light. Judgment has brought them to their knees, and now they're at a place where they have no choice but to yield. Okay? Now, Philippians 2 says that a day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's every knee. Um, that's even those who figuratively have knees. Uh, Satan will have to kneel at the judgment and proclaim that you're right, Lord. I am not Lord, but you are. All of the wicked of all the ages, because they will be resurrected as well, according to Daniel chapter 12, okay? And so, and Revelation chapter 20. So people will be brought to this place it's not a, I guess it is a positive thing, but it's not that they've feared him unto uh, salvation. All of this judgment here was done to protect the vulnerable and the poor from evil. Verse five, you will reduce the noise of aliens 
as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Now, the noise of aliens refers to the foreign invaders who have occupied a city. And here it's the city of God's people. And that you can hear them speaking. And apparently there is this uh, song of victory that they have been chanting within that city that they've conquered. And here Isaiah is saying, all of that will go away. In God's faithfulness, he will come to the rescue of his people. And the, 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 the aliens' voices and their songs of victory will be no more. It's going to be complete deliverance for God's people. And then he says, and in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast. And he goes on and talks about, you know, feasting on meat and then this aged wine. And then he says, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the cover, I'm sorry, surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over the, the nations. So you notice the mention of the mountain twice in this verse. Now, do you remember the first time that we looked at this mountain that is talked about? Because what we want to do is uh, we don't want to just come to a conclusion here and go, well, I think the mountain is this. But by comparing Scripture with Scripture, Isaiah started out telling us what the mountain was in Isaiah chapter 2. He's talking about the mountain found in Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself is on the mountain and then the Temple Mount. Very significant part of Isaiah's prophecy. On this mountain. Now you remember in chapter two that it's to this mountain that all of the nations will come to learn the word of the Lord, to this mountain. This, and this mountain will continue to come up uh, throughout his prophecy. Now verse seven is interesting. Uh, Isaiah is now looking forward to the destruction of a covering. He calls it a veil that's over all people, all nations. Now, I think we have to go to verse 8 to let the latter interpret the former. So he says this. He says, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will, will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, I think... Uh, that verse 8 tells us what the veil is. I think it's death. I think it's death. If there's one thing that we all will ultimately have in common is what? It's an alarming statistic. 10 out of 10 people, right? They, they die. It's not just a reality for the wicked, uh, but for the righteous. It's, it's just there. It's, it's the one thing that ultimately separates us from loved ones. We too will be swept away by its power. But the day is coming the promise of God that he will end death. And also, as the New Testament tells us, he will also destroy the one who has the power of death. So death and the one who we might say wields it, Jesus will bring all that to an end. John says that that all three, he says, Satan, death, and the grave will be cast into the lake of fire. There'll be no more death, no more grave. That'll be interesting. I don't even want to know what those things look like. What does the grave look like? I mean, in the way that John is talking about it, what does death itself look like? I definitely don't want to see what Satan looks like. Um, I want to sleep at night. So. so death will die and be no more. Now, if death dies, I think it also implies that all of the things that lead to death will be annihilated. So injury, illness, suffering, pain, all of those things will be gone. And I think that as we've talked about uh, in the past already with 
uh, some of these prophecies about the end, that we're going to have some, um, some bringing back of the Edenic state. So, you know, some of the consequences of sin are going to be removed at that time. And death, uh, of course, is one of those things. He says, no more tears. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, that is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, what is required to save them? Judgment. That's the context. That is what is required to save people in the circumstances that are presented here. All that Isaiah prophesied will be realized. Again, he says, For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him. A straw as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap, and he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim, and he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to, gr- to the ground down to the dust. Now, only Moab is mentioned here as, you know, the object of divine judgment, but Isaiah has already mentioned Moab and all of the other nations, right? Those that were near, those that are far, and then the rest that cover the earth. Now, I think that he's only mentioning Moab to save time. Rather than be redundant and mention all of those uh, places again, he just throws Moab out there. If Moab falls to God's judgment, the idea is that all the rest will as well. And then again, we have the mountain back in verse 11 uh, or 10. At that time, and this is something that I, is always important to me when I think of end times events and how it's going to be. At that time is a time that God has appointed. It's not something that just, just happens. It's not something that God is, knows in advance that it will happen and he's kind of waiting on it. Uh, no, no, Th- this is something within the, the grip of his sovereignty. This is something he's marked on his calendar. This is something he will bring to pass himself. This is not simply foreknowledge. This is causation. Aren't you guys glad that the end times just isn't like a toss-up and it, it's just completely out of control? It's total chaos. Where would that leave us? Our lives, it would just be completely frightening. But all of this is a time appointed by God, and all of the events are orchestrated by him all the way to his intended end, which is the salvation of his people, right? So when I talk to people about eschatology, end times things, some people are quite fearful. But when you read the text of scripture, fear should be removed from your mind because God is orchestrating all things to his not just revealed end, but his intended end. And he will steer his people right where he wants them through it all, okay? Just like we've seen with so much prophecy that's already been fulfilled in the Old Testament, the coming of Christ and the rest. So God will lay his hand on Jerusalem to deliver and bless the inhabitants of it. As we've already said, the only way that he can do that is by getting rid of the invaders. He says he will bring their pride and their trickery to an end. Okay, I got some time here to go into 26. He says, the fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down. Didn't I do that already? No, I did? Oh, do I have a double slide? I might have done that. Well, let's go to the the verse that's quoted the most. 
He says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever for in Yah, that's an abbreviated version of Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. How many of you guys have heard at least the, the verse three quoted? You've heard it? Yeah. I've seen it on cards. I've seen it on placards. Uh, it's probably in some of your homes someplace. It's a great text. It's there for good reason. But, you know, it has a, a context, of course, and it, it should be, first of all, interpreted within its context, but its application is, is extremely broad, okay? The context has to do with trusting the Lord in the midst of adversity brought on by a real enemy, by a real enemy. Think of, you know, David. Uh, David had a lot of real enemies, didn't he? Not figurative enemies, not enemies in a metaphor. He had real living enemies hunting him down for most of his life, okay? And he wrote a ton of things just like this, about trusting the Lord, being at peace, being at rest. Well, now we have Isaiah talking about this concerning God's people in the last days, being at peace, even though they had a real, they will have a real enemy. They will be enduring persecution unlike the church has never seen before, okay? They will be at peace as they trust the Lord. Now, I want to say it like this. Not even the troubles that the world will face at the fulfillment of these prophecies can shake the person of faith who keeps their mind stayed on the Lord. So what does it mean to have your mind stayed on the Lord? The word stayed means to be propped, to be propped up, to be rested on, okay? I think it really has to do with the idea that the, the anxieties of the heart and the mind have been given over to God's management. It's where we, we take all of our fears, uh, all of our insecurities, all of the uncertainty, and we say, Lord, this is way too much for me. I look out there at all of that that's coming in upon me. It's just everything is imploding. And so, as Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So what we're doing is we're taking all of that fear and anxiety, we're saying, Lord, I just, I just need you to manage this because I trust you and I know that you can manage it. So I'm gonna let you just prop it up, hold on to it, and deal with it, amen? Wouldn't that be nice if in reality, which I believe is a reality, that you could give God your anxieties, that you could give God your fears, and say, Lord, this is destroying me, so will you please manage it for me? That's really what all of this is talking about. The, the, the overall context is the worst circumstances the world has ever seen. And here he's saying the one who his mind is stayed upon the Lord, the Lord will grant him perfect peace. Perfect peace. This is the person that instead of looking around them for how perhaps their government is responding to chaos or how their, their immediate community is responding to adversity and trouble, they just look to God And because they keep their focus on him, they rest. Because you know what they know is that he has it handled. They believe what the rest of the scriptures say. Have you guys ever read uh, Polycarp's uh, martyrdom? Polycarp uh, was a disciple of a disciple of John, the apostle. And uh, he knew that the, the Roman soldiers were coming for him to take him before the, uh, the Roman government. And, uh, so he was in a cottage outside of town, and, and uh, they came for him. And uh, history says that he fed them. And then uh, because of his kindness, they were reluctant to take him. 
but they had to follow orders. And um, so they took him before the tribunal or whatever it was, and uh, they, they told him to recant. And he said that, I think, 80 and five years, I have served my Lord, and he has done me no harm. I cannot recant. And then they brought him to the stake to burn him, and they were going to tie him to the stake. And he says, you're not going to need those ropes to keep me here. And they burned him at the stake. But he was at perfect peace because he knew that the moment that he departed, he'd be with the Lord. And the Lord would handle all of the earthly affairs in his absence. There's stories like that throughout history of people that just trusted the Lord with all of their heart. And, and, and it's not that these people are indifferent. It's not that they're apathetic to adversity. They just don't waste their time fretting over it. To them, it's a waste of time. They live in it. They do what they can to minimize it and to minimize the suffering of other people, but they just don't lose it. You know, it's Jesus who said, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. He says, those are all concerns of my, my father, your father in heaven. Didn't he say that? I've read it before, I think, in my Bible. He said, do not worry. He says, that's for my father in heaven to worry about. He says, those are actually things that the pagans worry about because they don't have a father in heaven at this point. Paul said, be anxious for nothing. And nothing is a very interesting Greek word. It means nothing, okay? And as you go to God with it, it says that he will grant you uh, a peace that transcends understanding. It'd be a supernatural peace. So it's not a peace that you conjure up. It's not that you meditate and then you, you somehow, I don't know, you escape your mind and then you're able to deal with trouble no, this is a peace that God grants, that he does supernaturally. The person of faith knows that God has it handled. I think there's a great example um, earlier in Israel's history. It's in 2 Kings 6. You, can, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to abbreviate the story, but uh, you probably know the story. The king of Syria had planned to ambush the king of Israel, but Elijah, Elisha, rather, went to the king of Israel and said, hey, don't go to this place at this time because the king of Assyria is going to ambush you. So they didn't go. And then, of course, when uh, the king of Syria waited and waited and waited and they didn't show up, he, he knew that he must have a spy in his, in his, in his, among his ranks. And then somebody said, no, actually, it's Elisha the prophet. He tells the king of Israel all of your plans. And so he said, go find Elisha for me. And, you know, Elisha happened to be in the city of Dothan. So the king of Assyria got his chariots and horses and soldiers together, and they went and surrounded the city. Do you recall the story now? Troops are there by night. In the morning, Elisha's servant goes out, and he sees the army surrounding the city. He runs to Elisha, and he says, At last, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So the man of faith, whose you know, his mind is stayed on the Lord, he's not afraid, and he's also in a place where he can tell others not to be afraid. Elisha did not look to his servant for a proper response to their situation. And their situation was real. He looked to the Lord. And because he looked to the Lord, he knew what was up. He knew that the enemy was outnumbered. He knew that. Now, this is our reality as well, in spite of how we react to life. You know, the servant reacted one way to reality, and Elisha responded in another way. But their two different responses didn't affect reality at all. It just affected the person. Isn't that true? The man of faith rested while the person of unbelief was filled with anxiety and fear. And Paul said, if God is for us, who can 
be against us? Who can stand against us? Romans 8.31. Jesus said that no one can snatch you out of my and my Father's hands. John 10.28 through 30. Uh, when the disciples were in the boat in the raging sea and they were afraid, Jesus didn't comfort them. What did he do? He rebuked them for being unbelieving of having little faith. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, what I, I think is crazy is as Paul said to Timothy, that when we are faithless, God remains faithful. So in circumstance, you can lose it or you can keep it together and nothing will change God's faithfulness. He will deliver you anyway. But the question is, how do you want to go through a circumstance? Do you want to lose all your dignity and lose your witness to other people? Or do you want to be at perfect peace because your mind is stayed on the Lord? I think we could greatly help the psychology of our nation if people would come to Christ and just trust him with their emotional and psychological well-being. In fact, Paul says that we have the mind of Christ. It seems like more of us just need to walk in that mind. Amen? Yeah. By faith, we can rest and be at peace. Unbelief will just ruin it for you. Okay, I better stop there. I have seven minutes left, and I, if I delve into the rest of it, I'll just be going till quarter till. Some of you have to go to sleep. Steve needs his beauty sleep. So. Well, I need to stand up and we'll pray. Uh, in fact, that gives me more time to deal with the, uh, the song itself and some of the eschatological features within it. You know, interpreting the text at face value, I think, is the easy part, but fitting it in with the rest of Scripture is the more difficult part. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend some time entertaining that, uh, but I, I definitely can't give you anything definitive, and I don't think Isaiah could have either. But uh, it seems that much to the Old Testament prophet was hidden. In fact, when we get to Daniel, Daniel receives a vision of the end, and he looks to the angel who delivered and says, what does it mean? And he goes, close it up. It's for the end. And then that's all that Daniel got. I bet he had words for that angel when he passed. So let's pray. Well, Father, as we continue to study judgment, and not too much longer, we'll get into all of the redemptive things of the book of Isaiah soon. But Lord, I, I pray that we would understand your nature, first and foremost, and that we would understand truly as much as possible the nature of evil, that's, that it's destructive. It's, it's a, a cancer to all that is good. And if it continues, it will continue to destroy and so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your righteous judgment as it really is. It is good. It's holy. It's righteous. And the world that you created needs it to be back in place fully and that everything else that is contrary to it to be eradicated. And so, Lord, we thank you that at this point in time, we, we have the gospel and that we can come to you and be redeemed and look forward to the world that you have intended for us. And Lord, before you purge the earth and this world of evil, Lord, our greatest concern right now is that you would purge it within us, that you would wash us and make us more like you. Lord, we love you. We're grateful. And Lord, finally, I would just ask that as we continue to see so much chaos in our world and our nation, uh, morally and politically, um, economically, all that stuff, Lord, it, the, the promise and the statement of, of Isaiah there is for us now. 
that we can turn over the management of our emotions, our fears to you. And by doing that, Lord, we can think so much more clearly. So give us a mind that is like yours. And Lord, I pray also that as it's getting so dark now, I just pray that you grant safety to my, my family as they go home. In Jesus' name, amen.